Key Aero, your aviation destination. Historic Aviation. Hello and uh, welcome to the Fly Pass podcast. For this episode, we're joined by Peter Neal, one of the volunteers from the Spitfire and Hurricane Memorial Museum based in Manston. Hello, Peter. Thanks for joining us. Good afternoon to you, James. Excellent. So what is it you want to talk to us about today? You Well, I, I think basically what we need to get across is the actual history of our museum and why it's there, what it's there for, and what we actually do, where are we going in the future. We're a relatively small museum, but um, maybe right at the start, I should add that we are a very rare thing. We are a, a free-to-enter museum. Um, there are no charges involved. We live on donations, grants, and, and whatever money we can make from our shop or from the, uh, the little cafe that's attached to it. Yeah, we, we are free for entry, and uh, that's the way we continue to remain. But basically, if we go back to the start, um, or just a general overview to start with, we, we have two major exhibits in the museum. We have a Spitfire Mark 16, and we have a Hurricane Mark 2C, both of which have got uh, a wartime background. It's the Spitfire, basically, that is the main driving force that set up the museum in the first place. So if we talk a little bit about that to start with, that will then lead into how the museum evolved. Our Spitfire is the Mark 16. She was built at Castle Bromwich in the late 1944, early 45. She's a clipped wing LF version. She's not the teardrop shape. She's got a conventional canopy. She went initially to 66 Squadron. 66 Squadron then moved out to Holland as the advance through Europe proceeded. She was there for about nine days before there was a landing incident and uh, the pilot couldn't drop the port undercarriage. So a lot of damage to the, the wing and to the underside of the aircraft. She was restored and then reallocated to 403 Squadron Royal Canadian Air Force. That was literally the last couple of weeks of the war. And um, while she was there, she was their spare aircraft. So uh, with four separate pilots, she achieved four kills. And research has indicated that the most significant one is the final one, because it looks as though it was our Spitfire that shot down the last German aircraft in World War II, about three or four days before the surrender was signed. So she's got a significant bit of history to her. After the war, she went to various flight training, refresher schools, uh, maintenance units and what have you. And finally, she was sent down to Manston in 1955 with a view to basically being sold off or destroyed or, or whatever. Because at that time, we had a fire school opposite the RAF base. Anyway, the then CO of the, the base actually wanted to um, have a gate guardian. So he selected our, our Spitfire, TB752, and she stood as a gate guardian for many, many years outside the RAF base at Manston. She was treated with a fair degree of affection by the locals, obviously, because they treated her as, quote, our Spitfire or the Manston Spitfire. So, so she was treated with a great deal of reverence. But nature took its toll and the weather took its toll and she really needed to be restored. Now, at that time, what is now the Medway Aircraft Preservation Society, based at Rochester in Kent, but was then the Royal Aeronautical Society, brackets, Medway branch, came forward with an offer 
they'd been given some money by the MOD to restore a flying boat, but that fell through, but they still got the money. And so they thought they'd take on a project of restoring a Spitfire and please, sir, may we restore your gate guardian? To which the answer was yes, go ahead. It, it did go ahead, but it went ahead with two provisos. And those two provisos were it had to be back in time for the Battle of Britain Memorial Commemoration Service the following year. This is 1978-79 now that we're in. And also the MOD said that if it's coming back to Manston, there is no way it can sit outside. It has to go into a building. We can't afford the building, said the MOD, but we can give you the land. So on that basis, the aircraft was restored. Subsequently, an appeal fund was set up, the money raised for the building, and the building was erected. We ended up with a steel structure, steel skeletal structure, into which the aircraft was gently eased before all the walls and the roof went on, which was obviously a delicate situation because anybody on the roof, if they dropped a, a tool or nut or bolt or whatever and damaged the aircraft, which at that stage was pristine, then all hell was be, yeah, would be paid for. Uh, anyway, everything went well, and the aircraft then went on display in just the Spitfire Hall. As time went on, obviously... The trustees got together and said, look, we've got a Spitfire. It would be great if we had a Hurricane. And so questions were raised. Could we actually get a Hurricane? At the time, Medway Aircraft Preservation Society were tasked by the MOD to restore a Hurricane Mark II C that had originally been a gate guardian at Biggin Hill. And it was, it too was falling into disrepair. And, um, and so it was going to be restored. And that was going to go to the RAF Museum at Cosford. Well, it was in such a state, to be honest, that Medway Aircraft Preservation Society, MAPS as they're known, um, MAPS actually said to the MOD, look, please, can we have another hurricane to act as a, a donor? Well, at that time, our aircraft was sitting outside an office in, well, sitting on the, on the grass outside the offices of um, Lord Dowding, Air, Air Vice Marshal Dowding. I never remember his correct <laughs> title. Um, so please forgive me. <laughs> um, it was sitting up at Bentley Priory there outside his office. And um, so they said, well, yeah, take that one. Well, when they got it down to their base at Rochester, Map started obviously to pull it apart and have a good look at it. And they came to the conclusion that it was actually in a darn sight better condition than the ex-Biggin Hill one. So because maps were involved with the uh, museum down at Manston and they knew they wanted a hurricane, collectively they all got together and went back to the MOD and said, look, the one you want us to send to Cosford is going to take a heck of a lot of work. We don't have the space to do all of this work and, and also strip down the one that you've given us from Bentley Priory. Can we possibly take the one from Bentley Priory first, restore that to a decent showable condition and get that down to the museum at Manson? And then we can concentrate on doing your hurricane for Cosford. And the short answer was yes. So that's what happened. So that all took place, we're now into the mid-80s, so that all took place around about the mid-80s, and um, the hurricane was restored and 
to, to, to an absolutely beautiful condition. Not flying, would never fly again, but um, it, it was certainly in good condition to go into a museum. But again, we were faced with the same problem that the MOD said, no building down at Manston, the hurricane doesn't come down. And so the, the, the building was, uh, was funded, like the Spitfire Hall, was funded by local companies and public donations. And ultimately, the money was raised to put the Hurricane Hall in position. And it was in 1988 that uh, the Hurricane finally came down and joined its Spitfire sister. And on that occasion, Dame Vera Lynn opened our Hurricane Hall and uh, a great time was had by all as it was done. So that got the two aircraft into the museum. And uh, that's effectively how the museum evolved, about where it is now. We'd, since then, we, we've added things to it, obviously. We, we added a memorial garden, which um, is there to allow people to plant commemorative trees or benches in or whatever. Officially, not to scatter ashes, but who knows. But it's basically an area where people can reflect on their, their long-lost loved ones that were associated with the RAF. So we've got that in there as well. Because of Manston's association with uh, the Channel Dash back in 1942, the, the, may you may recall the, the six swordfish that attacked the Neisenau, the um, Scharnhorst and the Prince Eugen in the Channel, Although based at Leon Solent, took off from Manston. They were based at Manston for about a week or so prior to the attack. And it was effectively a suicide mission. But um, we have a, an area in the museum that commemorates the, those 18 guys that took off on that mission. We've got one or two other bits and pieces in there, big pieces in there. That, um, you know, For example, we've got one of the intermediate-sized bouncing bombs that were dropped in the trials at Reculver. Reculver is just on the North Kent coast, about two or three minutes flying time from Manston. And uh, during those trials at Reculver, 617 Squadron and uh, Arns Wallace and Co. actually used RAF Manston as their base. So we've got one of the intermediate-sized practice bombs that were dropped from the Wellington bomber, not from the Lancaster, but from the Wellington. There were two sizes, three sizes, basically. I don't know whether you know. There, there was the upkeep, which was the big one that the Lancasters were going to carry to the dams. There was a very small one that was going into the Bombay of a mosquito called Highball, which was primarily to attack ships. And then in the middle was this practice one that uh, was carried by the Wellington, but not for operational reasons, just for pure convenience. And we got one of those. So that's basically our museum in a nutshell. Um, what do we do down there? We, well, we now have a, a, a Spitfire flight simulator, which uh, has been there since April uh, 19, uh, 1918, <laughs> 2018. <laughs> it's more like it was the 100th, 100th anniversary of the formation of the RAF. That's bringing in some, obviously, some finances to the, to the museum, which is good. Uh, a lot of people seem to enjoy it. The occupant will sit in a replica Spitfire cockpit, so they've got the full display and the full controls and whatever, and then uh, the visual is on a, a series of big TV screens in front of them. Most people enjoy it, so that's the main thing. So we've got that. We also like to ensure that we pass on the knowledge, if you like, the as, as we're getting to the stage where 
Obviously, World War II is going out of living memory, starting to go out of living memory. It's something that can't really be forgotten. So, so we try to promote the idea of, of taking this forward to the younger children. And we have school visits coming in and we'll take them around the museum. We'll give them a presentation on whatever they want to do, really. A lot of them just want to do the Battle of Britain or, or, or talk about um, Manston's role in the, in the Second World War. So we'll do that for them, generally for about two hours. And as I say, all of this is basically promoting in their young minds the fact that there was a war, that these two aircraft that we have here are genuine aircraft, that they did do something, um, and without them, basically, we would have a big problem. So that's where we are at the moment. That's, that's where we're sitting today in 2021. We do have plans for the future. We are currently entering a fundraising exercise to raise money to extend the building a little bit. What we want to do is to put in something like a lecture theatre, which will make life a lot easier when we do get these presentations. Because at the moment, we squeeze ourselves in alongside the Spitfire, which is all well and good as a backdrop, but um, it's not exactly convenient and not exactly the right place to do it when we have other visitors in the museum. So we're looking at doing that. Yes, we need more storage space for the artifacts that we've got. And yes, we need a little bit more office space. But um, that's where we are at the moment. As I say, we're doing all of this effectively on donations and um, grants and what have you, where there's no entry fee to pay. So uh, we're not in the same position as, for example, the big RAF museums uh, that will charge for entry and then can obviously use that money to promote different areas. Um, we can't do that. A lot of our advertising, if you like, is, is done by word of mouth. So that's where we are. All very interesting stuff. I mean, having researched the sort of history of Manston, it was a very, very important airfield in its own right, not just as a Battle of Britain airfield, but before the war. It was a First World War station, I believe. Yeah, exactly. There, there has been an airfield there for over 100 years. It first started off, obviously, as a grass field and remained as a grass field up until about 1942. The tarmac wasn't put down until 1942. But when they put the tarmac down, they actually put the tarmac down as an extremely wide runway. And they did that primarily so that any returning bomber from a raid over in Europe that was damaged, they'd say to him, OK, pop it down on the left-hand side which would leave a lot of space left for other bombers or other aircraft that were also damaged to get in. So although it's 9,000 feet long, which is quite a long runway anyway, it's phenomenally wide, and um, that runway is still there. Not in operation at the moment because uh, there is still debate going on as to whether Flying will return there. There is a company that wants to promote the airfield as a freight hub. Whether that happens or not is still in debate, but uh, the runway is still there. Currently being used, as you may know, currently being used by the government to park lorries on as and when Operation Brock is in place. And there's a big delay getting lorries across the channel. A slight difference to uh, you know, scrambling to get rid of uh, V1s. Well, exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, yeah. But the history of Manson is not just its role in the Battle of Britain. You know, after the war, it was a U.S. Air Force base, and the U.S. Air Force were in there. 
It's been used for civil aviation since around about the 1970s, 1980s. It's been, been used for civil aviation of one sort or another. Flying schools are down there. Yeah, generally, it, it was an active airfield up until about five, six years ago. But now it's in this state of limbo until such time as uh, a resolution is made about whether it's going to be a freight hub or not. Well, sadly, it's a prime piece of real estate, isn't it? That's the, the sad part of all it's, these airfields. It's like yeah. their value is what you could build on them. Exactly, it, because that's one of the other options, I think, that uh, they want to obviously turn it into a housing estate of some sort and various other small industrial areas. But yes, it's a huge area. It's a, it's a big, big space. And it's um, neatly situated between the main group of towns in Kent, the Medway towns, Canterbury, Ashford, and then, of course, Dover. Dover is literally just half an hour down the road. So it's it's got that attraction as well. Well, as you said, though, that they, when you did the fundraising to restore the Spitfire and the Hurricane, it shows the wealth of feeling and the passion still for the RAF in the area. Yeah, yes. We, we get a good cross-section of people coming into the museum, obviously, ranging from youngsters, five, six, seven-year-olds, all the way up to people in their 90s. And virtually everybody I speak to down there has got a tale of either a Spitfire or a hurricane that was told to them by a relation that was perhaps involved in as ground crew or pilot or whatever. And yeah, some, some of those, those tales are, are very interesting, very interesting. And yes, there is a genuine, love is perhaps a strong word, but there's a genuine feeling of affection that you can see in people's eyes when they're, they're, they just stand there and look at these, these two aircraft. Because... Generally, of course, they wouldn't be allowed to go that close. Although we have these flexible barriers all, all around the aircraft, they can still literally get right up close to, to them and see the, you know, count the number of rivets on the underside of a Spitfire's wing, for example, and generally get a, a close-up impression of what those aircraft were like. And generally, the comment that comes out is that, crikey, isn't that a big engine? <laughs> Because um, on the Spitfire, we actually have one of the engine covers off, so people can actually look into the engine. And uh, yeah, it's uh, well, you've, you've probably seen inside there, underneath the bonnet of a of a, of a Spitfire or a Hurricane, a lot of pipe work and a lot of metal in there. Yeah, an awful lot of uh, machinery goes into it, isn't it? <laughs> yes, yes. Well, it's the thick end of what a ton, ton and a half of engine, so it's. Big, powerful engine. And in, in, with our Spitfire, it's a 266, a Merlin 266. It was built by Packard in the US. The actual engine was built by Packard in the US under license to, to Rolls-Royce. And so she's uh, tuned for low-altitude work. She's throwing out around about 1,700 horsepower, which is a lot more than the average motor car. Quite a bit more. I've got a Beetle in the garage. It's got 30 horsepower. Kind of, kind of puts it into context, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. We've actually got a, a, a wrecked Merlin engine there as well that came from a, a crashed Hurricane. And when you look at the size of the pistons, you can actually see the size of the pistons. They're like saucepan lids. It's, it's amazing. It's a, it's a big, big engine, 27 litres of engine. And not the sort of thing you want to take on a shopping trip. but um, No, not the price of petrol these days. Well, no, exactly, no. 
Uh, well, they, they, these things used to, uh, around about the Battle of Britain, they used to take on about 80-odd gallons of fuel, and that would be enough to keep them going for about an hour. So, yes, it's uh, quite thirsty. Yeah, yeah. So a museum like this obviously relies on people like yourself, volunteers who are you know, knowledgeable yes. enthusiasts. How did you get started? What was, what's your involvement? Where did that come from? Well, my mother always said I should have been born with wings. Um, so I've always wanted to be involved in, in aviation. Um, and when I reached retirement age, I thought, well, I'd like to do something. And my wife had actually seen an advertisement, a flyer in the local library saying that they were looking for volunteers. And so I took myself down there, had a chat, um, was accepted as a volunteer. We, at that time, we all went through the shop first so that we would all be au fait with the workings of the shop and we could always stand in if somebody was unable to come. But then I progressed on to, to being a host, and then I got involved in writing a couple of books about the museum, um, one for the history of the museum, and the second one was on the development of the Hawker Hurricane and um, how our hurricane actually came from its birth, as it were, at Langley, the works in Langley, to end up in, in our museum. So... I did that, and then I got involved with the presentations for the children, and then, as I say, moved on to the, the flight simulator. So I think all of us down at the museum, there are about 50 or 60 volunteers that um, are spread around the place. Obviously, we generally run a, either a morning session or an afternoon session. And we've got volunteers in the garden. We've got volunteers in the shop. Volunteers, obviously, looking after the collection itself assisting the collections manager. So we, we spread ourselves around a bit, and we've all got that thread of an interest in, in wartime aviation that's running through us. And I think that's, that's what keeps us together. We're, we're quite a happy bunch. Obviously, we provide our services free of charge, but, uh, yeah, we're, uh, we're generally quite a happy bunch. There's a group of trustees that's um, basically looking after the the interest of the museum financially and, and as, as far as where we're going in the future is concerned, etc. But uh, the rest of us are just pure out-and-out volunteers who just like to roll our sleeves up occasionally and, and get involved. I have to ask, are you a Spitfire or a Hurricane guy? I am a Hurricane guy. The <laughs> To answer that, let me tell you the title of the book that I, I wrote about the hurricane development. What I wanted to get across was the fact that the, the hurricane was always missed. Everybody thinks, ah, oh, the Second World War, was the Battle of Britain was won by the Spitfire. Not the case, not the case. But the title of the book was Forever the Bridesmaid. Remember, you've probably come across the phrase, forever the bridesmaid, yep. never the bride. And I think that's probably about right for the hurricane. It has been forgotten to a certain extent. And it's, it's a great pity because it was a revolutionary aircraft at the time. It was a monoplane when everybody else was thinking about biplanes. It had a retractable undercarriage when everybody else said most of the RAF aircraft were fixed undercarriages. Sidney Cam and his design team at Hawker took a gamble. They knew there was a war coming. They had to come up with something. The big decision was... Do we go for a metal-skinned aircraft, which we know will be superior in performance, 
or because of the lack of time, do we stick with uh, the tried and tested tubular frame, wooden formers, doped linen over the outside? And that's the way they went. And they knew they were taking the gamble. They knew they hadn't got the best thing. But then my background is an engineer, and I always maintain that providing you hit the, the specification, the time scale, and the cost, and you hit those three, there's always scope for a Mark II. And I think that's the attitude that Sidney Cam and the design team at Hawker had. They knew that what they were coming up with was going to be, quote, good enough. Was it going to be the best? No, that was still in the bag. And I think on that basis, they were able to produce an aircraft, which if we hadn't got it, maybe the outcome of the Battle of Britain would have been different because at the start of the Battle of Britain, there weren't very many Spitfires around. Uh, there were a lot of lot of hurricanes, but not many Spitfires. And the alternative to that was the Gloucester Gladiator. And we all know what happened to the Gloucester Gladiator. So it's the right aircraft at the right time doing the right job. And unfortunately, a lot of that gets missed. So yes, in answer to your question, my soft spot, as it were, is with the Hurricane. See, I knew you were going to say that because I think once someone gets into the Battle of Britain, you kind of really get into the hurricane as well. And yeah. so many people were like, oh, you know, the hurricane, the hurricane, it's always forgotten about. And actually, it's true because, as you say, yeah. it was quick and easy to repair, wasn't it? You slap a bit it's, of um, fabric over a hole and yeah. it's good to go. Whereas a Spitfire, it's a, it's a metal skin. Yeah. yeah. And, and also, it was, it was quicker on the turnaround. Um, if it came back in, and you know, obviously, as you know, during the height of the battle, they were, they were going up five or six times a day to take on the, the Luftwaffe. Um, a Spitfire, when it landed, needed refueling, needed rearming, that would take about 25 minutes, which is pretty good. The Hurricane, they could do it in nine. Now, that's the equivalent of a Formula One pit stop, and it's, that's going some. So they could get that aircraft back in the, in the air very quickly. And as you said, there is always that, that addition that, had it suffered damage, it was readily repairable. And when you look at some of the photographs of the damage that had occurred to the hurricane, you wonder how on earth they stayed in the air. Um, with great lumps of fabric missing from the, the fuselage, um, or holes in the rudder, or, or colossal amount of damage. Yeah, you, you do tend to wonder how they, how they kept going. There was one case of uh, 1942, the battle at Dieppe, when the, the Allies went ashore in Dieppe, the disaster, another disaster. But uh, 43 Squadron, one of the Hurricanes coming back from there, had a massive hole in his wing. And the only way he could keep it in the air was to fly almost flat out. He was running at about 250, 300 odd miles an hour just to keep it in the air. And of course, he then had to try to land it. So you know, he, he did finally get it down and survived the, the tumbling aircraft at the end of it. But it, it just shows how well that aircraft could soak up punishment. There was another of his teammates, or another of his squadron mates, when he got back into Tangmere, he landed, came to a halt, and the tail fell off because of the damage. So you, know, they, you just wonder how those aircraft kept going. But then that explains the affection that anyone who flew it had for it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, one of the, the great... Um, friends of the museum that we had were, was um, Bob Stanford Tuck, who was an ex-Hurricane pilot. 
and um, yeah, he he was uh, he was he was good. He was very good. But he, yes, it was a it's a much more stable gun platform than the Spitfire. It seemed to work, and then, as I say, it could dish out and absorb a lot of punishment. Where whereas the Spitfire wasn't always capable of uh, of absorbing that same degree of punishment. And at the end of the day, you need to get a damaged aircraft back into the air as soon as possible. We didn't have that many of them around. Well, you clearly know your subject. Um, so how, how can people come and visit you? Have you got a website that you can still uh, Yeah, towards? we do have a website. Um, you're now going to ask me what the website address is. Uh, but uh, the easiest way is to go into Google and put in Spitfire and Hurricane Museum. I can never remember the actual address of the museum, but we do have a website. We have a, also have a very active Facebook page, which um, is kept more up to date, perhaps, than the the website itself. We're always open to visitors. We we've got, uh, as I said, we we do have a cafe attached to the museum. Food in there is very varied and very very tasty. We've got plenty of car parking space and coach parking space as well. We have a separate coach park as well as the regular car park. We're free to enter. Normally run summertime between 10 o'clock and 5 o'clock in the evening. And during the winter time, our closing time is brought back an hour to 4 o'clock because obviously it's getting dark then. But uh, yes, we're there most of the year. Mondays is a day that we usually have to ourselves to do any maintenance work, to shuffle around some of the exhibits and to do some maintenance on the simulator if necessary. But the rest of the time we're open and uh, ready to welcome visitors with open arms. Perfect. I think that's the best place to leave it. So thanks very much for joining us, Peter. Okay, that's my pleasure. This has been a podcast from Key Aero, your aviation destination. Remember, visit www.key.aero for more of the same. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to catch up with you again soon.